really good this morning. I tell you what, I just felt, felt like we were worshiping the Lord there. You know, as we look at God's Word, uh, God's Word is up to date and relevant, and it's amazing when you begin to look at God's Word, how it just comes into play with the modern day events and things like that. And this morning, we're going to continue our study on prophecy, and we're going to be looking at a passage in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 that speaks to us about a coming war between uh, the nation of Israel and uh, Gog and Magog and the nations that are gathered together. So, But before we go to that passage, what I'd like to do is uh, just read a, a word from you from Zechariah chapter 12. The prophet Zechariah talking about the troubles surrounding Israel and and, uh, you know, it just seems like there's always trouble in the Holy Land. It seems like there's always conflict between Israel and her neighbors. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, it just, it's, a, it's a continuous thing. In 1948, Israel raised the flag of independence. And prior to that, that area had been under control of the British. And, um, and so at that point, it was turned over to them, and immediately they were attacked by their neighbors, their Arab neighbors, and, um, and their Persian neighbors as well. So, but, but notice what the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse number 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Verse number one is just a good example of the creator of the universe, the one who has given us life, the Lord himself, the covenant name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the translation. The word of this Lord, who is the creator, the one true God. He says in verse two, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And then he goes on to say that it is a heavy stone. And, you know, it seems like it's been that way during the time of, of our world. It just seems like there's always something going on over there. There's been trouble ever since antiquity. And so this morning, what I would like to do is I would like to talk with you about a day that is in the future. We don't know exactly when it will happen. Some people believe that this will be a prelude to the, the uh, rapture of the church. Some people believe that this will happen after the rapture of the church. We just don't know. Joel Rosenberg, who has written a number of books and uh, is a, a believer, a Jewish believer, he, he said it's hard to say one way or another. I kind of think maybe it could happen at any time, especially when I see what's going on in the world today, uh, and I see the rise of anti-Semitism all over this world. It, it begins to look like this could turn at any moment. But in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see now in the prophetic future that nations will go against Israel, but God will deliver the people of Israel. And so please take your Bible and go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And so if you're in Ezekiel chapter 38, I want to begin reading a portion of this with you. And let's, let's stand together and uh, read this portion. This is God's holy word. If you're at home and you're worshiping by 
uh, you know, via the internet this morning, we'd encourage you to get your Bible out and read with us and stand up right where you are out of reverence for God's holy word. Ezekiel chapter 38, beginning with verse number one. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about, about and put hooks in your jaws. And I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, welding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with, with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of his hordes, Beth Tagarma uh, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountain of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell, in, dwell secure, securely, all of them. You will advance Coming on like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize spoil and carry off plunder to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited. And the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock, goods, and seize great spoil? And then if you'll skip down to verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And he goes on in verse 38 and verse 39. And he talks about this great group of armies coming against the people of Israel and then to no credit of Israel at all, God destroys these armies and sends destruction even to the countries from which they come. This is an amazing thing. And we're going to talk about maybe some of the history behind this and then some of the encouraging things that we can gather from this passage but I want to ask right now that you would join me in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may it bring to us a sense of understanding and perspective for what's happening in our world today. 
And Lord God, we pray that we might find and see the reasons that we, as your possession, as your people, redeemed by the blood of your Messiah, Lord God, that there is hope, even in this passage that speaks of great destruction. Lord, may we find comfort in your protective presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You know, as we look at this passage and as we think about the conflict that seems to be ongoing in the Middle East, we might ask ourselves the question, why is this happening? Why is there always war in the Middle East? Why are they always fighting with each other? And there are a number of different reasons for that, and there'll be reasons for Ezekiel's war. But let me just share with you one of the reasons for this conflict that we find is based on religious ideology. The truth of the matter is that most of the nations that are aligned against Israel in this war, Ezekiel's war, are there because of a religious ideology that promotes the destruction of the Jewish people. It's an ideology that promotes and commands the followers of Muhammad to kill Jews and to kill infidels which they call Christians. The truth of the matter is that many wars have been fought because of ideologies. The reality is that Islamic teaching is militaristic. When Muhammad founded Islam, it was based on the capture of cities and slaves. And he went to Medina and, excuse me, he went to Mecca first and was rejected. And he began to war and he went back to Medina. He was accepted and eventually he had conquered by force and commanded the conversion of people to Islam or either slavery or death in that region. That's how it grew. And were it not for Charles Martel who opposed them with his war, his, his army, we might be in a different place today with a different set of beliefs. But God has his reasons. And the reality is that when Islam started, it started out uh, with many words of peace. But as you read later on in the Quran, as you read this, and the, the chapters in the Quran are called surahs, and the latter surahs call for the extermination of the Jewish people and Christians. Now, I just want to say, I know that, that we have friends of different religions, and we all have different beliefs, but when you look at the history of Islam, and when you look at the way that it has been fulfilled in this world, those who follow Muhammad's teachings are involved in bloodshed. In Christianity... We find that we're to pray for our enemies, for those that persecute us. We're to forgive our enemies. But in Islam, unless you are a follower of Muhammad and you adhere to Islamic doctrine, you are, uh, you're considered one that is worthy to be killed. Now, I know that there are people who practice Islam today and, uh, and they do not uh, subscribe to this, but the majority and those who would follow the teachings of the Quran... This is what they teach. And this is one reason why there are so many nations in the Middle East that are constantly at war with the Jewish people. There's a second reason that we might note this morning for the conflict that is ongoing right now, and that is related to the land. The argument for a place to live. And I just have to tell you, while 
many people clamor and say that it's wrong for the Palestinians uh, not to be in Israel and not to have land and all of this. I just want to share with you that that is a lot of... Uh, a lot of things behind that, that, that really don't, that don't have credibility. First of all, in 1948, prior to the war that began, the War of Independence, a number of the Arab states surrounding Israel sent messages to the people, the Arab people who were living in that region and told them they needed to get out of the land of Israel because they would be in the middle of a war. And many of them left. The strange thing was that none of those people who left were ever accepted in Jordan. They were never accepted in Saudi Arabia. They were never accepted in Iraq. They were never accepted in Egypt. In other words, these other nations did not want the Palestinian people there. And as a result of that, after the war... They were people without any home. They could not go back to Israel because they had pretty much declared their allegiance with those Arab nations. And consequently, these nations then put them in camps, but they would not let them become part of their nation. Now, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, if you've got a cause for the Palestinians, you'd think that they would want to be hospitable and bring them in because of what happened. But it's obvious they weren't concerned about that. What they were concerned about, these nations, was that they kept a people in the heart of Jewish land who would be there to always be clamoring for the destruction of the Jewish people and for moving them, uh, getting them out of the land. I know this because there have been a number of attempts to provide a state for the Palestinians and a state for the Israelis in Israel, and yet what has happened is some key power brokers in the area have rejected those solutions. They call it the two-state solution. It was proposed many years ago. But the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization that came to be in the early 1960s, they rejected it and called for the destruction of the Jewish people. Hamas, the terrorist group funded by Iran and Hezbollah, supplied by Iran, they called for the destruction of the Jewish people. There is no opportunity for a two-state solution, according to these people, because the Jewish people don't even deserve an opportunity to live. And so when you see all of these protests out there and these people so passionate, they don't understand that this, this has been offered. And as a matter of fact, uh, just more recently, prior to this administration, there was the Abrahamic Accords, and they were working towards a solution. But again, Arab leaders, notably those in Iran, decided to push the button and bring about a horrendous event that would trigger another war. And by the way, I want you to know, ever since 1948, Israel has been at war in every decade. Because again, you have a religious ideology that calls for their destruction, and, and this does not mean that all Arabs are Islamic. They're not. Many, there are many Arab Christians, praise the Lord. And there are many of them that, are, that have lived in Israel and do live in Israel. But, but you've got this argument for land that is really not about as much about land as much as it is about the destruction of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. 
And then you have another cause for this conflict, and this is family heritage. You know, like the Hatfields and McCoys, you know. I mean, uh, it's like the, the Attaways and the Petties. No, it's not like that. <laughs> we, we all get along. That's my wife's maiden name, by the way. But anyway, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, there's a family issue here, and we're going to jump around a little bit, and we've got to do it quickly because I don't have, I can't keep you here as long today as I did last week. So anyway, take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 36, and I want to I share with you the relationship that... Uh, that it exists between Jacob and Esau. And, and while you're turning there, let me just share with you the family heritage. There's a connection here between the sons of, of Abraham, Isaac versus Ishmael. I talked briefly about that last week, but you remember that Ishmael was the child that was born to Hagar and Abraham. And as far as the, the, the Muslims are concerned, Ishmael is the one who received the blessing of God and Ishmael was to be the rejected son. And so they, they cite the one that, that, they cite the blessing coming through Ishmael rather than, than Isaac. And so that's part of the problem with family. The second problem with family comes with Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau, uh, again, were, were two, two sons. And anyway, let's look at verse 7. All right, they, Jacob and Esau are in the land, and they're great. They have great possessions because they have, you know, they've just grown like crazy. So God's blessed them both. But verse seven it says their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. Verse eight. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Now, you should understand that the Edomites were, even though they were, they were cousins of, you know, that they were, they were fighting with each other. They're like the Hatfields and McCoys. And because of that, they had incurred God's ire. But, but Esau, he went to Mount Seir, which is today is, is southern Jordan. And when he went to, to Mount Seir, it actually was renamed Edom. And so the Bible tells us here then that Esau was an Edomite. And his, his, uh, the people that were born in his family, they were against Israel. And I want you to notice what it says in Ezekiel chapter 35. So I know we've got to jump around, but go quickly to Ezekiel chapter 35 because this is a prophecy against the very people, the Edomites, who were at Mount Seir, Ezekiel 35, beginning with verse number 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. You just might want to jot this down, and maybe even they'll, they'll have it. Thank you guys for doing that. All right, Edom, Ezekiel chapter 35. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Prophesy against it and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you. Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins, and you will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. These people were ungodly people. They were brutal against the people of Israel, and therefore they incurred the wrath of God. Okay? Now, 
there was another group of people who just happened to be related and part of the offspring of Esau, and they were called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, when, when Israel left Egypt and they were coming back into the promised land, Canaan, the Bible tells us that the Amalekites, who were part of that group of Edomites, some of them, from, they were from Esau, but the Amalekites decided that as Israel passed by, they would attack the old and the weak and the young who were stragglers in the last part of that group. They were vicious. That was brutal. And because of that, they incurred the wrath of God. But Esau's grandson was named Amalek. So go back to Genesis 36. I want you to see this because there's a connection there that speaks of this bad blood and these wicked things. Genesis chapter 36, verse number 10. It says, Genesis 36, verse 10, These are the names of Esau's sons. And I hope I can get through this. If I have trouble, you're going to have to help me, okay? Thank you very much, okay? <laughs> going to help me, all right. All right. These are the names of, of Esau's uh, sons. Elipaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemuth. The sons of Elipaz, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam and Kenaz. Esau's son Elipaz also had a concubine named Timna who bore him Amalek. You might want to circle Amalek. These were the grandsons of Esau's wife Ada. So we go from Esau, Edomites, to Amalek whom God said, I'm going to wipe them out. Because they, again, they have, they've opposed, they've tried to destroy my people. And then we go from Amalek to a man by the name of Agag. And Agag, who is part of the Amalek line, because there were some Amaleks that survived, but, you know, they're, they're not known today, but Agag is one of the grandsons. And Agag becomes the father of the Agites. Agagites. Are y'all with me? I'm drawing a picture here, and you're going to find this is going to be interesting when you get to when we get to the very end. Because Agag had a, a grandson himself, and that grandson was a guy by the name of Haman. So go to the book of Esther. Say, where in the world is the book of Esther? Well, it's before you get to the Psalms, and it's right after the book of Nehemiah, okay? And in Esther, the story of Esther is that the Jews are now living in, uh, in Persia and, uh, because they've been scattered all over, okay? And Esther is there, and she has an uncle named Mordecai, and Mordecai is a prominent uh, Jewish man, but he is at odds with a leader in King Xerxes' government. And this leader is named Haman, who just happens to be related to Agag, who just happens to be related to Amalek and the Amalekites. And so 
Haman devises another strategy to destroy the Jews. He wants to kill all the Jews that are living in that region. And Mordecai warns his niece Esther, who is a concubine in Xerxes' court, and she has an obligation now to go to the king and try to protect her people, and she does, and you know the story. Haman, who devised this plot to destroy all of the Jews in Persia, he actually loses his life, and the Jewish people survive, and so forth and so on. But look what it says in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha. Hamedatha. Hmm. How many syllables is that? Hamedatha. Okay. Haman, son of Hamedatha the Agagite. It seems to be that there is a family heritage connection with people who want to destroy the Jewish people. But we're not even going to stop there. Because if you get to Matthew chapter 2, what you will find is that Haman had a great, great, great grandson whose name was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, inspired, I believe, by Satan himself, put out a hit list on all the babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem who were about two years of age because he got word that the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, had been born and he was seeking to destroy this one. You know, as I look through the Bible, I see this over and over again. There seems to be a plot to just wipe the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Let's fast forward to the late 30s, early 40s. Now in Germany, there is a leader there who is, has taken over, and this leader goes by the name of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler has in his mind the extermination of who? The Jewish people. And he succeeded in killing six million of them. But guess who, aside from Imperial Japan, guess who else was involved in that plot? The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem who was an Arab leader and the most prominent Arab leader of his day. But we don't even want to stop there because the Arabs were aligned with the Nazis. But let's fast forward a little bit, and there was a guy who founded the PLO, and his name was Yasser Arafat. And guess who he served as a young man? He served the Grand Mufti, of Jerusalem. And as late as 2000, I think it was 2002, Arafat was praising the Grand Mufti. Again, this again is a group of people who seem to be persistent in trying to wipe out the Jewish people. Folks, I just, I'm just telling you, I, I don't really believe in coincidences, but it seems, it is clear to me that there was a line of people, and there still is today, the reason that they get up in the morning, it seems like, is to fulfill the plan of destroying the Jewish people. And that's what we see happening right now. 
And so why all this conflict? Well, all of this conflict because, in part, because of uh, just a commitment by those in the family to oppose the Jewish people. Part of it is religious. Part of it has to do with belief about land and that sort of thing. But the reality is that these groups, particularly when we think about the Persians, Iran itself, they will not be satisfied one bit. If they would not want a two-state solution, they don't want one because they want the destruction of the Jewish people. Somebody has said in Islam, first they go after each other. And by the way, the Bible says that Ishmael is, he's like a wild donkey. He's always at war with his brothers. And it's true to this day as the father of the Arab nation, he's all, they're always at war with each other. And we have seen that. But secondly, they go after the Saturday people. Who are the Saturday people? The Jews. And then it said after that, they go after the Sunday people, the Christians. So, you know, everybody is different and they have a choice to make, but by and large, that is what's going on. So how do we look at this passage and what can we derive out of this that might be an encouragement to us today? Okay, first of all, who are the nations involved in this war? I want you to understand. Uh, it, it describes different people. First of all, in Ezekiel 38, it speaks about Gog, the land of Magog. In 500 BC, the Greek historian Herodotus identified the land of Magog as that of the Scythians, and they are the ancestors of Russians. The Roman historian Josephus, uh, Flavius Josephus, he lived shortly after the time of Christ. He identified Magog as the land today that we know as Russia. The Bible speaks here about the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. The prince of Meshech is literally the prince of Rosh. And Rosh is the word from which we get the word Russia. Meshech is an ancient name for Moscow. Tubal is the ancient name for Tubalisk. And both of those are key cities in the history of Russia. So those people are involved. We go a little bit further down. If you look in Ezekiel 38 verse 5, it speaks of Persia, Ethiopia, and Put, or Libya. And, and these people are nations that are aligned with Gog and Magog whenever that war happens. This is modern-day Iran as well as Ethiopia and Libya, they will march against Israel with Russia. Gomer is mentioned in Ezekiel 38 verse 6, and Gomer refers to Eastern Europe. Specifically, it refers to Germanic peoples. And so there'll be some Germanic peoples involved in this. Uh, Tagarma refers to modern-day Turkey. Turkey will march with Russia one day. It's interesting, uh, the, 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 the president of, uh, of Turkey, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, his name is leaving me right now, but he has threatened to pull out of NATO. And, and by the way, Turkey is an Islamic state. And more recently, he was to meet with Netanyahu about what's going on, but he, he just refused to go. And again, the sentiment is that the Jewish people do not have a right to live in the land. So we have these groups that are that are involved here. And, and let me just pause there for just a moment and just say this, that, that you know, when, when the leader, the, the prince of Meshach, Gog, who is the leader of the land of Magog, we believe he to be a, a Russian ruler, when he assembles his group to go down and, and attack, he draws in these nations with him that are already 
ready to go to war. And the point that I want to make about this is a good leader of a nation, of a church, of a business, of a family, will protect his people or her people. And what happens is when we are unsuspecting and we don't recognize the character of people that is, when a character is bad, man, it's best not to get involved with those people. And what happens is this man, this leader, who is motivated by, you know, God is at work in him, but his heart of darkness comes out and, and he leads these other people to their destruction. By the way, you know, you need to be careful about people you associate with. Bad company corrupts good character. And, and I really believe that a lot of the rise of anti-Semitism has come about because people have been lied to and they have been associating with those who have a historical family bent to just destroy a race of people, which I, I think that's demonic. But there's an old fable that says a man one day picked up a piece of, of scented clay. And he said to it, what are you? Are you musk? No, I am only a poor piece of clay, but I have been near a beautiful rose. And it has given me its own sweet smell. i got to tell you, people, not everybody who is Arab wants to destroy the people of God. I have friends that, that are Arabs and they love the Lord. I have friends that are from Lebanon and they love the Lord. But, but the point is that if you're around people who have an attitude of destruction, be careful, it can destroy your life. I'd rather smell like the Rose of Sharon. Be like Jesus. All right, let me just say this. Number one, what is it that motivates this man to attack? Well, in verse number 10, it says that there are some things that come into the mind of, of this, this leader, this person, Gog, and the leader has evil thoughts. Let me just say pastorally real quick this morning. The words that you speak and the actions that you take, you know where they begin? Right in here. And when we have stinking thinking, we begin to smell pretty bad, and others notice it. Be careful about your thoughts, you know. Take control of your thought life. How do I do that? Well, here's how I do it. Number one, I renew my mind of the truth of God in Christ. The Word of God says not to be conformed to the image of this world, but be renewed in your thinking. That's in Romans chapter 12. It demands us to, to study God's Word, to let God's Word infiltrate our lives and to change us, and it begins to change our thinking. And it goes to the point of getting to the place to where even our enemies, we begin to have pity on them, and we pray for them. And we actually bless those that curse us. It changes our life. Man, I tell you what, what we need to do is just... We need to let God control our thoughts. You say, well, I just can't control my thoughts. You just don't know how this is, Pastor Craig. Well, let me just share something with you. I've shared it before, but you know, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot stop a bird from what? Landing on your head. But you can keep it from building a nest. Thank you. 
look, I can't, some of those thoughts, they flitter in, and I don't have to dwell on those thoughts that are displeasing to the Lord. What I do is I begin to change my thoughts. I think about whatsoever is true and lovely and pure and good. As the Apostle Paul said, I think on those things, and guess what? The peace of God will reside in my heart. It's a peace that passes all understanding. So, so evil thoughts. This person has evil thoughts. And, and in verse number 13, the scripture says that, uh, that, that, that Sheba and Dedan, and by the way, Sheba, uh, Sheba is, uh, most Bible scholars believe that Sheba is present-day Saudi Arabia, and Dedan is the area north of Yemen. But, but the Bible says that Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to, to, to Gog and Magog and this group of armies, and they will say, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry out plunder or to carry away silver and gold and take away livestock and goods to seize great spoil? See, this is, this is what motivates many people in the world. What motivates most, I won't say most, but many people in the world is covetousness. I want what you have, and I'm willing to kill you to get it. See, greed is something that God condemns. Matter of fact, the Ten Commandments say you were not to covet. We're not to covet what our neighbor has. And in the New Testament, it's God says, listen, you, you just... You cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that, that thieves and covetous, along with drunkards, revilers, extortioners, uh, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, and abusers of themselves with mankind. That's another word for homosexual. I'm probably going to get banned now. But uh, it says very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're going to hell unless they receive Christ. And if they receive Christ, their life will change. You know, you can't harbor hatred in your heart without having a, if you're a believer, without having a conflict with the Holy Spirit every day saying you need to forgive, you need to change. Well, these people that were coming against Israel, there's a creed. They want to spoil. In 2004, listen to this quickly. In 2004, a permit was given to an oil drilling company or a geology firm in New Jersey because they think that they may have found oil on the Golan Heights in Israel. Now, wouldn't that be big? That would be very helpful to the nation of Israel. Did you realize that the Dead Sea has so much potash in it that it can, that, you know, potash is required for fertilizer and it's required for the production of armaments. And what do people need now? They need fertilizer to grow crops, to eat food. So who knows? Maybe they're coming down for this reason. I, th I think it's interesting, too, in this passage, because these nations, they come against Israel, but it speaks to us in verse 38, and it describes here uh, Tarshish. And some people believe that that is a reference to Great Britain. 
and um, and that uh, that it, it's it's some of the Tarshish was a sea they were seafaring people, but but present day it translates to to England. And the English have always been players in the Middle East. And some people say, well, well, what about America? America's not mentioned in prophecy. Guess what? Some people believe that the young lions of Tarshish that are mentioned here refer to the offspring of Great Britain, and one of those offsprings would be the USA. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is interesting to me. Let me just... Let me just say to you that when we think about this pastorally, we have to understand the power of greed to manipulate and give somebody a reason to do some very evil, wicked things. And so let's get away from that. Let's learn how to trust the Lord and not to try to fill our lives and make our lives abundant by, you know, by, by having more and more and more. Jesus said life does not consist of the abundance of things. But real life, abundant life, eternal life is to know God. And as we look at this passage, uh, we need to understand that, that evil character produces evil results. And those who walk with bad characters, they end up getting hurt. And then one more thing that I want to point out here, and i got to do this quickly, and that is when you look at all this and you see that God says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and I'm going to call you down, it doesn't make God responsible for the evil that was in their hearts, but what it does show you is that God allows the evil to flourish so that he might demonstrate his goodness and his power so that the world might know him. How does he demonstrate his goodness? Because God made a covenant with the people of Israel that I'm going to be with you, that I'm going to give you the land, that I'm going to be your God. And one day, right now, you're hard, but one day you will realize that the Messiah has come. And on that day, when God destroys these evil forces, the people of Israel will know that God has not abandoned them, that God is at work. Praise God. Isn't that good? Because what that means for you is that because you're part of the covenant family, God will always be there for you, regardless of what happens. He never turns his back on those who've come to him. The scripture says, that God will get glory. Ezekiel 38, verse 16, he says, You will come up against my people like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When, you, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God did something similar to Pharaoh in Egypt. He demonstrated his power by destroying the Egyptian army. And one day in the future, he will demonstrate his power once again so that the whole world may know that there's a God in heaven, the Lord God, and that he is supreme over all, and all of us have an opportunity to get to know him. Let me just wrap this thing up by saying the most important need that you have is you need, you need to know the goodness of God, and Israel will know the goodness of God in that day. But let me just share with you that the most important thing that a person can know in this world is to know God and to know the one whom he has sent. It's important for us to know the Lord. We believe as Christians that he is God, that he's creator, that he's the redeemer. And all through the Bible, the Lord has demonstrated his desire to redeem the lost, to reach out to the broken, to heal the brokenhearted, to raise up the lame, to give sight to the blind, to open the heart and to provide mercy to those who will cry out to him for forgiveness. That's who God is. And we see it all through the Bible. He's not a God of war like Allah. 
He's not a God of slavery like the Muslim God. He is a God who seeks to redeem, and the world needs him. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 38, verse 23, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And Jesus said it like this in John 17. And this is eternal life, that they might know the one true, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus was praying to his heavenly Father then. The great need of our world is to know the Lord. And the promise is that God will demonstrate his power once again on behalf of his people. I hope that we're raptured out um, before that happens. And it may be we will be raptured out. Um, because after all, when, when a lot of people leave this world, uh, you know, at that point, maybe Russia will be emboldened in these Arab nations. But then again, it could happen before we're raptured. I don't know. When I look at what's happening now, it begins to make sense about why, you know, generation after generation, there's always a destruction plan for Israel by those who have rejected the Lord. But you know about that now. The question is, have you given your life? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you invited him to be your savior? If you've not done that, then it's vital for you to do that. And to my Jewish friends out there who are watching this broadcast, I have to tell you that over and over again, the scriptures reveal Jesus as the Messiah. The book of Isaiah, the book of Micah, over and over again, it points to Christ, Jesus Christ. I pray that God will lift the hardening from the hearts of the people of Israel and perhaps to your heart that you might receive Christ who is determined to demonstrate his love to you. Well, maybe this morning God would lead you to that kind of decision. If you've not done that, then this is the time we're going to do it. We're going to sing. Uh, Pastor Sean is going to come and lead us in worship. And if God is calling you to make a public decision for Christ, I'm going to be here. I want to receive you that you might know the joy of receiving the Lord and being with him for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth. And Father, we pray that you might bless this time of decision, that we might decide for you, that we might not be alarmed by the things that are going on, but Father, that we might be comforted in knowing that you will be there and that you are there and that you offer life to those whose hearts are open and repentant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about First Baptist Church of Wildwood and our ministries, you can go to our website, fbcwildwood.org, our Facebook page, First Baptist Church of Wildwood, or our Instagram page, FB Wildwood. Have a great Jesus-filled day.